to another episode of Uncommon Voices, Uncommon Visions. I'm your host, Dr. Valerie Nyberg, and I am having this episode for Black History Month 2023. Um, Recently, I was doing some family research for a piece I was writing for a writer's group I belong to, and I found out a very curious thing about my family I I didn't know. Um, I knew that my great-grandma, Ella Golightly, was a school teacher in South Carolina in the early 1900s. And then she moved to Detroit, Michigan in 1919. But um, at the time, what I have done in research pointed to the my, the first part of the migration of Blacks from the South to the North for better economic opportunities. Um, what I didn't expect to find was that my great-grandmother was part of my family that had to forcibly leave uh, South Carolina, um, basically at the drop of a hat. So I was doing some research on Mark Huey Gassaway, who is my great-grand-uncle. He was an educator in Anderson County, South Carolina. He actually to graduate from um, Clafton University in Orangeburg, South Carolina in uh, 1889. And he married a woman who uh, was a graduate from Spelman College before it became Spelman College. But that's where she was educated. And they settled into Belton County uh, for a while where he was initially um, he took the test and he passed the test with the highest score to become the postmaster. But when f- folks found out that he was um, African-American or Black, they threatened that if he took the post, he would be, um, it, he would regret it. I'll just say that. Um, so he didn't. He instead decided to become the principal of Greeley Institute in Anderson. Um, he worked there with his wife and they helped that institution grow from serving nine students to serving over a thousand. Um, Then they moved on to Reed. Then he became the principal of Reed Street School, also in Anderson County. Um, And his success and his teachings of his, to his students uh, became very controversial within the white community members. So despite his dedication and um, fortitude, um, he was, there was first published threats in the newspaper. And then in 1919, he was told to leave town within 24 hours. His crime was creating the Anderson branch of the NAACP. Shortly after one of the local branch's first meetings, he was told by a community member that men would be coming to his house to kill him and his family. So within 24 hours, he left and so did several of his nieces and nephews. And one of those nieces was my great-grandmother, uh, Ella Golightly. Ella Golightly had graduated from uh, Sterling College in Greenville, South Carolina, and she was a teacher in Anderson County at the time and uh, picked up with her uncle and left. He went to Cleveland, Ohio. She went to Detroit, Michigan, where she couldn't become a teacher um, in Detroit. So she had to take a job as a kitchen worker for the Board of Education in Detroit. Um, I bring all this up to say, when we talk about reparations for Black people, we're not talking about giving something to people who haven't earned earned something 
or haven't lost something. We have, I, I recently watched on the, the Today Show uh, a segment on the Japanese American internment camps and how in LA, the Japanese American museum has a written record of every every Japanese that was in that who was interned and so people can go in and recognize a person in the, listed in that book by stamping it and what the what they want to do is they want to be able to recognize every individual who was forcibly removed from the home and sent to an intern internment camp during World War II. Well, for Black Americans, there has never been a full disclosure of what happened to them. Um, I was super shocked to learn that my great-grandmother had to leave. Um, and what what's really Im- interesting is I looked up on the University of Missouri, and I'll, I'll make these available, looking at the average salary of a Black teacher, female teacher, in between 1910 and 1919, my grandmother may have made as much as $143.92. If you put that in today's salary, that's like $21,000. And then she had to go and become a kitchen worker. Um, and I say it like that, not because it's an indignified work, but this is a college educated woman who was forced to leave her home, leave all that she knew, flee with her her daughter and her husband to be to work in somebody's kitchen. I, where in history do we talk about these things? Where do we we acknowledge the um the loss of income, the loss of opportunity, the loss of home ownership, the loss of of having uh, a, a people around you, your family around you, who could support you when uh, when things got tough. I mean, there were so many things that were lost in that move, and that's not to say that that was the only loss. Uh, I was looking up um, different information about my great-grandmother. And in 1940, the census records have her as a boarder. Um, In 1930, her husband, Richard, was actually killed um, while working at the Ford factory. Um, He was run over by a car. um, And I actually saw the death death certificate about that. Um, And you know, by 1940, she's living as a boarder. By 1950, she's living with my grandparents and my mother was a young, when my mother was a young child. And I just think of all the um, the wealth and the stability and the missed opportunities that I had, even in my family. Now, I, I feel very fortunate and I understand the privilege that I have being able to trace back my family history, at least until 1795, where uh, Moses, the the first that I can find at this point, um, uh, slave named Moses was brought to this country and learned to read and write and taught his ch- children to read and write. Um, and um, you know, to have that much 
history of literacy in a Black family is definitely a privilege. It's definitely something that I understood growing growing up, even though I grew up poor, even though I grew up in an unstable household, even though I experienced a lot of different adverse childhood experiences, I always knew that the folks who had come before me were stable, educated, accomplished people. And that the challenge for me was to make sure that I did the same. Most of us, most Black folks in the United States don't necessarily have access to that, that information. I mean, here is my family history, part one, and here is another version that my great-grandmother actually helped to write, part two. So these are documents that I can go back and look at when I look at Ancestry.com, I can find names and then I can look them up and find out more about their story and their history. I'm extremely fortunate. Most of us don't have that. So when we talk about reparations, when we even talk about student loan forgiveness, we're not talking about giving something to people who, who haven't earned it. We, we're not talking about giving something to people who haven't had a legacy of toil and work and effort in this country, we're talking about righting wrongs for folks who have not been recognized, who have not had their voices heard, who have not had access and opportunity to live up to their ultimate potential. And we're trying to fix that. Just like we recognize that when we interned the Japanese during World War II, they lost their land, they lost their homes, they lost their businesses. And in the 1980s, early 90s, I think I think I was in middle school, so 1980s, the government issued a, a public apology and gave some reparations for that. I don't understand why this is a debate in our country that these things that we're bringing up now in 2023 are revisionist history and are looked at and scrutinized as not being accurate depictions of history when they are. They're this history that we we haven't been taught because it's an ugly history. It's a history that demonstrates how much of the United States has come to be on the backsides of the poorest and least capable uh, people who had, like, when I say capable, I mean people who didn't have the, they didn't have the backing of government, they didn't have the backing of police, they didn't have the backing of courts. They had to toil on their own, and even when they did that, they were still threatened with their lives and and forced forcibly removed under penalty of death, with no trial and no ability to stand up for themselves. And and we ta- we treat that as if we're making making it up. When I hear Governor Ron DeSantis talk about, you know, we're not going to have any you know woke people in 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 Florida, I wonder what's so disturbing about knowing the truth. What's so disturbing about recognizing that so many people in our country have never had an equal footing to others in our country. I think of my friends, like when I was raising my kids and my friends, and I don't have a lot of friends in this, in who for whom this is true, but I do have some friends who moved into their parents' houses after their parents 
retired and decided to either move away or move into a, a different, you know, a facility, a care facility or what have you, they got to move into their parents' houses or their parents gave them cars or their parents um, let them live rent free. Those are advantages that Black folks typically don't have access to because typically a lot of us come from either rental units. I was raised in rentals. My mother never owned a house in her entire life, or they they own houses in places like Detroit, Michigan, where my grandparents' house, that house was abandoned and squatters actually took it because it wasn't, you couldn't sell it. So we we have redlining to to that cornered off Black folks in unwanted areas of, of the community. And we then proceeded to withdraw economic investments and let those areas kind of go. Um, and, and then we have issues like in the water crisis in Flint, uh, Michigan, where they also had a water crisis. But we wonder why these things happen. It's because of the lack of investment over generations of people who've decided that, well, this place doesn't have the tax base to raise the taxes necessary to keep up with the 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 needs of the water infrastructure. So we're we're just gonna kind of pass the buck and hopefully hopefully it doesn't fall apart on our watch. These are people's lives. They're their homes. They're their places of refuge. And they have been let down over and over and over again. So I actually, in the 1990s, I, I remember reading an article about reparations and I remember talking with my mom about it. And I wasn't convinced at that time that Black people needed reparations, mostly because I was raised with this notion, in, at least in school, that, you know, we're supposed to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But when you pull yourself up and you get kicked down and you pull yourself up and you get kicked down and you pull yourself up and you get kicked down and your leg gets broken, is that really what our country wants to stand for? Is that what we want to say is equitable for everyone, you know, to, to ignore that history, to ignore those facts? And to, um, for lack of a better word, whitewash them. Is that where we're going? Is I, I, I hear these these arguments about the student loan forgiveness and people suing because, well, I didn't have, you know, access to that. This is not our country isn't about equal is not equity, and our country isn't about making sure that everyone has the exact same thing. It's about being able to come to a, a place and have an equitable chance to make something of yourself. And over and over and over again, we see in our educational systems, we see in the prison systems, we see in, in many facets of our society that not everyone has had that, that same access to opportunity. And and in the year 2023, I really feel that we have to acknowledge that in order to move forward, because if we don't, we'll continue to to ignore the elephant in the room. I pulled this Bloomberg 
article. It was written in June of last year that talks about Black Americans in 2019 had one sixth of the wealth of white Americans on average per capita basis. And that this was based on a, pa- a paper by uh, three economists, four economists. And um, that is an improvement on, over the 60 to one ratio in 1860 on the eve of the Civil War. But with the pandemic, the pandemic saw wealth concentration reach its highest level since World War II. So that um, the estimate the level of black to white wealth to reach 8.4 by uh, 2200 from the 5.6 in 2019. In that year, black wealth stood at $60,125.58 compared to $338,092.80 for non-black households. How do we not want, why do we not want to recognize that people have worked hard and have still not had the same access to success than their non-white counter or non-black counterparts. I don't understand why that continues to be a, a sore point. And then when I look at, you know, this is this is my grandmother's obituary that, you know, she she earned her teaching certificate in Sterling College at Greenville, South Carolina, and taught in Anderson County in South Carolina before coming to Detroit in 1919. Black teachers from Southern colleges had little chance of teaching in Detroit in those times. And she took a job as a school kitchen worker. Not because she wasn't talented, not because she wasn't skilled, but because she was barred because of her race. And so I I looked at trying to figure out what she was making as a a school kitchen worker based um, from the $149.92 that she had been making as a teacher. And mind you, mind you, in Anderson County in between 1910 and 1919, there were 17 male um, male educators and 70 female educators for a grand total of 96. So if my grand uncle, my great grand uncle his wife, my grandma, my great grandmother, and some of her siblings left. We're talking about a sizable portion of the educators in one county were chased out for their lives. And what did that leave behind? Because those folks weren't replaced, most likely. Community most likely didn't have those those same level of educators for many, many years after that. I don't understand why these conversations, why this re- this revelation are so hard for people. Um, I, I just don't understand. Um, yeah, despite his all of his dedication and selflessness, he also had enemies. From the beginning of his career, Anderson... In, in, in Anderson, he opposed. He was opposed by some powerful residents who made their feelings a matter of public record by publishing their threats in newspapers. In 1919, the total toll of Mark's activism came to a head when he was told to leave town within 24 hours. His crime was creating the Anderson branch of the NAACP. Shortly, uh, yeah, I've already read that part. 
Mark and his family made a hasty retreat to his brother's brothers in Seneca, South Carolina, where they rallied and collected firearms. Kerry and others advised that there would be more guns and a legal system that would not support Gassaway's position if they chose to retaliate. The next morning, Mark, his immediate family, and several of his nephews and nieces left South Carolina never to return. Offending Negro leaves Anderson. With departure of preacher of Preacher fear of race trouble diminishes. School teacher resigns. Anderson, October 9th. The feeling that race trouble might develop here as a result of statements alleged, alleged to have been made by Reverend Boucher, pastor of one of the Negro churches in the city, diminished considerably today when it became known that the Negro preacher had left the city. The situation since Monday afternoon had, had been tense. Um, some level-headed members of his own race went to the Negro preacher um, something and he advised him to leave. M.H. Gasway, principal of Reed School, Reed Street Negro School, upon request today, tendered his resignation, which was immediately accepted at a special meeting of the Board of Trustees of the city schools. He has been advised to leave town also. Um, Gasaway has been living here for for about 20 years. <laughs> I'm just floored when I think of what could have been my life had my great grandmother been left able to stay in her home, to stay with her family um, and to, to build wealth in terms of home ownership and and be able to pass that down to her daughter and to her, her daughters and to her children. I get very fired up because that was something that that was denied to us. I mean, um Langston Hughes wrote um you know what happens to a dream deferred and I think what we see in our schools, what we see in the streets, when 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 people start to march, we're seeing the results of the dream deferred because people are frustrated. And now with the internet, people have much more access to information about history and much better access to finding our family histories through things like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. And I'm sure there are other mechanisms for for finding your your family history and we're finding out we weren't just slaves we were people who had education who had dignity who who really tried to better ourselves and were full participants in the american dream only to have it stolen over and over and over again with the various mechanisms of forcing you out of your home, redlining, not, you know, not, not investing in communities where, where black and brown people lived, creating slums in places like Chicago and Baltimore and all the major cities where those areas of the community were cornered off by mass transit and railway systems and, and other ways of isolating folks in these places that others deemed less than desirable. 
we have to recognize that. We have to reconcile that. I do believe at this point that reparations are in order, not for people like me. I think like me, my children, we're okay, but there are many people who are not okay. And those folks deserve to be okay. And we deserve, they deserve to have the same investment in them that we we invest in our farmers, we invest in our in our politicians, we invest in 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 our small business owners. Folks do get hand, you know, a hand, not a handout, but they do get assistance in many different forms in our country. And it seems that when we talk about assistance to brown and black folks, it come becomes a handout. But when we talk about farmers insurance, it becomes you know, a, 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 a right of, of a part of doing business or being a farmer, farmer is to, to have farm, to have crop insurance and to, you know, when, when the weather decimates your crop to be able to, to be paid some amount of money to replace what you lost, not because of something you did, but because of a natural phenomenon. I don't think that's ter- too much to ask for Black folks. Again, this was kind of like an ad hoc um, topic that I've been thinking a lot about that kind of came to a head this weekend when I was doing research about my family and and discovered that my great-grandmother was chased out of town um, and how that changed her, her life, um, that changed her daughter's life. Um, and and the economic impact of all those changes, um, economic, social, political, you name it, it had a profound impact. And yet we don't recognize these things as a country. Um, and when we as we begin to find them out and call them call them out, people are talking about being woke and and in rewriting history and revisionist history as if these things didn't happen like we're making it up and it's it's appalling to me that more people aren't understanding how they got to where they are is directly opposed or directly linked to how other people weren't allowed to get to where they could have been Again, this is another episode of Uncommon Voices, Uncommon Visions. I'm your host, Dr. Valerie Nyberg. Thank you for listening. Feel free to like, share, or comment on this episode. Thank you again. Talk to you later. 